Ezekiel chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. My desire tonight is to finish this section, and when we meet back in two weeks, to jump into chapter 5. So let's pray that God gets us there. There's a lot to cover. And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you, and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem, and put siege works against it, and build a siege wall against it, and cast up a mound against it, set camps also against it, and plant battering rams against it all around. And you take an iron griddle and place it as an iron wall between you and the city and set your face toward it and let it be in a state of siege and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. Then lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of years of their punishment. So long shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. And when you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side, and bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I assign you a day for each year, and you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared, and you shall prophesy against the city. And behold, I will place cords upon you so that you cannot turn from one side to the other till you have completed the days of your siege." And you take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and emmer, and put them into a single vessel and make your bread from them. During the number of the days that you lie on your side, 390 days, you shall eat it. And your food that you eat shall be by weight, 20 shekels a day, from day to day you shall eat it. And water you shall drink by measure, the sixth part of a hin, from day to day you shall drink. And you shall eat, as, eat it as a barley cake, baking it in their sight on human dung." And the Lord said, Thus shall the people of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I will drive them. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I have never defiled myself from my youth up till now. I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has tainted meat come into my mouth. Then he said to me, See, I assign to you cow's dung instead of human dung on which you may prepare your bread. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem, and they shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety, and they shall drink water by measure and in dismay. I will do this, that they may lack bread and water, and look at one another in dismay and rot away because of their punishment. Now, if you remember last time we were together, we dealt with a lot of this section. We're going to spend the rest of our time tonight dealing with the rest of that we hadn't covered and we're going to take a look tonight at the meaning of the 390 days and 40 days of Ezekiel's prophecy concerning the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, I'm going to tell you ahead of time two things. One, there has been and still continues much debate among Bible scholars as to the meaning of this prophecy. If you've even done a little bit of research to find out what the meaning of the 390 days and the 40 days is you will have found that nobody out there agrees on what the interpretation is. I'm also going to say this to you. I have never studied more on one certain topic for an extended period of time than I have on this issue right here, of the 390 and the 40 days. In all my years of studying the scripture, I have never spent this much time on just one aspect of a piece of scripture. And I'll be honest with you, I even kept track. I put 15 hours just on the 390 days and the 40 days, just that. And I'm going to look you in the eye and tell you, I'm not sure there's an answer. But there's a lot that I have to show you from that study 
And I want to show you why I ended up where I ended up. I'm not just going to just stand here and say, I don't think we can know. Because I think there are some things we can know. But we're going to spend our time tonight looking at what I dug into. And actually, there's something kind of interesting we're going to get to at the end of that, which may be kind of interesting to you, but I'm also going to tell you at the same time, it proves nothing. All right? So let's begin. We know this much, that Ezekiel's told by God to lay on his side, on his left side, facing the north, which is representing the tribe of the northern kingdom, Israel. He was to lay on his left side for 390 days. Now, the question has always been, was he not allowed to move? Well, yes, he, it's obvious from context he's have to have to move. It was a period of each day he was to spend on his side because you'll see in the passage he's to prepare his bread. And you can't prepare your bread for 390 days all at once. It has to be done on a daily basis. So he's got to get up to do that. Plus, he has to go to the bathroom, okay? He's going to have to get up and move. This is a section of time that he spends, and God won't even let him move during that section of time. And it's obvious that he's there long enough laying on his side as people come to see him in the house that it's obvious God's doing something. Now, when he lays on his left side for 390 days and then his right side for 40 days, the scripture tells us that the 390 days are referring to 390 years. Take a look at Ezekiel chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Look at what it says again. For I assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of the years of their punishment. So long shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. And when you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side, and bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I assign you, a day for each year. So the 390 days that he lays on his left side, facing the north, is representative of 390 years of the punishment, if you will, of the northern kingdom Israel. Then he's to roll over and lay on his right side facing the south for 40 days, which represents 40 years of Judah's punishment. Now, God had done something similar to this back in Numbers chapter 13. Go back with Numbers, actually Numbers 13 and 14. Go back to Numbers chapter 13 and look at verses 25 through 33. When the nation of Israel was brought to the promised land... And God said, go in, I'm going to give you the victory. They didn't trust God, and they decided to put a committee together to research it. And the pastor over here laughs because he's dealt with the committees. In Numbers chapter 13, look at verse 25 and following. At the end of 40 days, so how long had they been spying out the land? 40 days. Keep that in mind. At the end of the 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of Negev, the Negev, the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. 
Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against these people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we, and so we seemed to them. Jump over to chapter 14 now and look at verses 26 through 34. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore I would make you dwell, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones who you said would become a prey, I'll bring them in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the, this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure." So here we see that they spied out the land for 40 days, and because they rejected God's plan and trusted in man's wisdom instead of God's plan and His promises, for each day that they disobeyed, they were to be punished how long? A year. So the 40 days became 40 years. So we see here that He's to lay down on His side 390 days. I assigned you 390 days, a day for each year. So somehow, this laying on, 300, on side for 390 days and then 40 days is tied to 390 years of something or 40 years or ends 40 years of something. Now, as I said earlier, there's tremendous debate over the exact fulfillment of 390 years and the 40 years, even to whether or not they're referring to Israel and Judah's wicked past or future judgment. In other words, what I want you to see is the word here in the ESV that's translated punishment, some of your translations say iniquity, Right? You know, some of your translations say iniquity. And if you actually do the work and you find the Hebrew word that's translated iniquity or punishment, it's a Hebrew word that actually has four different words in English that could all be used to translate it. And they all pretty much together would say punishment for iniquity. In other words, it's a sin, it's an iniquity, but at the same time, it's a punishment for the iniquity. So iniquity is good, but punishment's good too. But because of that, we don't know if he's talking about Ezekiel's going to lay on his left side for 390 days, representing 390 years of past sin and the judgment because of the past sin, or he's laying on his side for 390 days, representing 390 years of future judgment. Do you understand the difference? It's, it could be that it's representing 390 years of things they've done in the past, or it could be 390 years of what is to come. That is the question. And, and be honest with you, if you do the research, you'll find probably 50-50 on both sides of what that, what that means. Now, some say that Ezekiel is to lay on his side for 390 days to represent Israel's 300 years of past iniquity, and then on his other side to represent 40 years of Judah's past iniquity. We have a problem, a few problems with that, though. First off, if he's to lay on his side for 390 years or 390 days, representing 390 years of the northern kingdom's past iniquity, 
and only 40 days, representing 40 years, for Judah's past iniquity, it would seem that the northern kingdom was far more wicked than the southern kingdom, correct? I mean, if it's past iniquity, one of them is that 390 years of past iniquity. The other one's only got 40 years of past iniquity. Was the northern kingdom that much more wicked than the southern kingdom? Now, actually, the scripture shows us the opposite is true. Go with me real quickly to Ezekiel chapter 23. Now, as you're turning there, I want to give you a little heads up now. You're going to hear God using sexual terms. But these sexual terms are tied to their idolatry. Remember, God sees them worshiping other gods as unfaithfulness to him. And therefore, when they would worship other gods, he would use sexual descriptions of what they were doing. In Ezekiel 23, look at verses 1 through 11. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. There were two women, the daughters of one mother, and they played the whore in Egypt. They played the whore in their youth. There their breasts were pressed and their virgin bosoms handled. Ohola was the name of the elder, and Aholiba the name of her sister. They became mine, and they bore sons and daughters. As for their names, Ohola is Samaria, and Oholiba is Jerusalem. As you've heard me say all the way through, whenever the Bible uses symbolic language, it tells you what it's symbolizing. So Ohola is who? Which is the northern kingdom. And Oholiba is Jerusalem, which is the southern kingdom. All right. Ohola played the whore while she was mine, and she lusted after her lovers, the Assyrians, warriors clothed in purple, governors and commanders, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding on horses. She bestowed her whoring upon them, the choicest men of Assyria, all of them, and she defiled herself with all the idols of everyone after whom she lusted. She did not give up her whoring that she had begun in Egypt, for in her youth men had lain with her and handled her virgin bosom and poured out their whoring lust upon her. Therefore I delivered her into the hand of her lovers into the hands of the Assyrians after whom she lusted. These uncovered her nakedness, they seized her sons and her daughters, and as for her, they killed her with the sword, and she became a byword among women when judgment had been executed on her. Her sister, the southern kingdom, Oholiba, saw this, and she became more corrupt than her sister in her lust and in her whoring, which was worse than that of her sister. So, according to this, the southern kingdom was worse. Not only because they had seen what the northern kingdom was, was doing and how God judged the northern kingdom. If you'll, you'll see later on in our study, not tonight, but later on as we continue in Ezekiel. And of course, we're going to be looking at a lot of stuff in Jeremiah. During the reign of Manasseh's kingdom, and he's the king in the southern kingdom, he was actually having these idols in the temple. Not just up on the high places, but they would bring them into the temple as well. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 3. Look at verses 6 through 11 in Jeremiah 3. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under, under every green tree, and there played the whore? And I thought, after she has done all this, she'll return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense only, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah." 
So one of the problems I found in my study of trying to make the 390 years for the northern kingdom and 40 years for the southern kingdom be, to be representative of their past sins is Scripture tells us that the southern kingdom was far more wicked than the northern kingdom. So how come they're going to be judged because of it seemingly worse sins in the northern kingdom and less in the, in the southern? Now, another problem with that is this. If Israel and Judah had been unfaithful to God for 390 years and 40 years, when did it begin? And when did it end? I mean, if you're going to take that interpretation that he's now pointing out the fact that the northern kingdom Israel was in sin for 390 years and the southern kingdom was only in sin for 40 years. When did the 390 years begin and end? And when did the 40 years begin and end? And trust me, there are people out there that have tried to figure out the exact math to make it work. Some have tried to put the math together to sometime around the time of Solomon's reign. But this is only an attempt to go back 390 years from 586 B.C. and the fall of Jerusalem. But if the 390 years are referring to the northern kingdom, why are they doing the math to the fall of Jerusalem? Because the northern kingdom had already been removed in 722 B.C. when the Assyrians had taken them all captive, remember? But they, so they just try to make the math work ending up around 586. They have it beginning sometime in the time of Solomon's reign when he started to turn away from God. But the problem with that, first and foremost, is they're starting in the time of Solomon, but they're carrying the 390 years all the way to the destruction of Jerusalem, which is Judah. The northern kingdom's already been judged. So there's a problem with that math. Others have tried to begin their math around the 18th year of Josiah's reign, while others try to begin the iniquity at the time of Israel rejecting God and wanting a king. All of these are an attempt to possibly tie their math to the northern kingdom's captivity in 722 B.C. And let me just tell you, if I have spent hours with calculator. You can't find it where it begins and where it ends where the math will work. And there's also something else I want you to see. The honest answer is that there is really no suitable and clear place to begin the iniquity of Israel and Judah being in the past because they have been in rebellion against God pretty much always. You can't say, oh, it began here. Because you know what the scripture says? Go to Ezekiel chapter 20. Let me show you what the scripture says about this. Ezekiel chapter 20. Look at verses 1 through 24. It can't get any more clear. In the seventh year, in the fifth month of the tenth day of the month, certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me, Ezekiel speaking, and the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Is it to inquire of me that you come? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Will you judge them, Son of man? Will you judge them? Let them know the abominations of their fathers and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt, I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God, on the day that I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, Cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt." 
Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. Then I said, I will pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, in whose sight I had brought them out. Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land that I had given them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. Because they rejected my rules and did not walk in my statutes... And profaned my Sabbaths, for their heart went after their idols. Nevertheless, my eye spared them, and I did not destroy them or make a full end of them in the wilderness. And I said to their children in the wilderness, Do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor keep their rules, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules, and keep my Sabbaths holy, that they may be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God." But the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes and were not careful to obey my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. They profaned my Sabbaths. Then I said, I'll pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the wilderness. But I withheld my hand and acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them through the countries because they had not obeyed my rules, but had rejected my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths. And their eyes were set on their father's idols. So according to Ezekiel 20, when did their idolatry begin? Actually, it was going on in Egypt. It was going on in Egypt. And they didn't stop even when they came out of Egypt. Remember when God led them into the wilderness? Not long after that, he takes Moses up on the mountain. What did they do when they said, we don't know what happened to Moses? What did they do? They made a golden calf, which was something from Egypt. They immediately, folks, Israel had been in disobedience all along. There was no period of them not doing this stuff. You'll even see as you look through the judges of the history of Israel, there might have been good kings and bad kings. But even during the reigns of the good kings, they still had high places. They still had times when they always were worshiping idols. So if we're going to say that the 390 years is referring to past sin for the northern kingdom and 40 years is past sin for the southern kingdom, when did it begin? Where can you make the math work? You can't. Because the scripture says that Judah was more wicked than northern kingdom. And on top of that, they've been unfaithful all along. So with that, the other option is that the 390 years and the 40 years refer to a prophesied time of future punishment. And that's where I lean. But don't get too excited because there's lots of problems with that as well. All right. First, as with the past sins view, if Ezekiel's laying on his side for 390 days, referring to 390 years of judgment for coming judgment for uh, the northern kingdom Israel, and then lays on his right side for 40 days, representing 40 years of coming judgment for Judah. Here's a problem. When does that prophecy begin? 
When does that judgment begin? We know in the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 to 27, that the, for the 77 is decreed for Israel. It tells us when it begins. When you see the decree to rebuild the walls and the city, it's going to be seven sevens from that point and then 62 sevens and so on. We know when that begins and when we know how that's all going to play out. We're just waiting for that last seven to begin. We don't know when it begins, but we know what starts it, which is what? That last seven that's coming? What starts it? The peace treaty. The covenant being confirmed with the many by the Antichrist. So in those prophecies, we know the beginning point. Here we don't know when this begins. Now, there have been many people that have tried to do the math. The problem is there's problem. Well, there's another question I want to ask you along that same line. Are the 40 years of Judah's, the southern kingdom's punishment, coming punishment, are they running concurrent with the 390 of the northern kingdom? In other words, while the 390 going on, are the 40 happening at the same time for the southern kingdom? Or are they added on at the end, making a total of 430 years? Oh, here's another question. If it's future, not only do we not know whether or not when the 390 and the 40s are going to begin, what about the 70 years of Babylonian captivity? How does that play in to all this? Because we know that they're still in the midst of that prophecy being fulfilled of the 70 years in Babylon. So we got some problems. Now, again, if you want to, you'll hurt yourself trying. But you could sit down and try and do some math and try to figure out some historical dates that shows when this began and when it ended. But there is no historical date that matches up to any of the different attempts at making the math work, even though many, many have tried. Because if you say it begins at the end of the siege of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., and you add 390 years to that, there's nothing significant that shows that it's come to an end. Nothing. Oh, you want to get even more confusing? The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures translated into Greek, translates this passage in Ezekiel 4 as not 390 years, but 190 years. Don't ask me why or how. Oh, and by the way, even 190 years doesn't work. There's no date that will show that that judgment was done on that time. There are some that try to say that the four, if you put the 390 and the 40 together, it totals what? 430 years. And they, some will say, well, that is the time of silence that God had between Malachi and Matthew. Possibly. I don't think so for lots of reasons, which we'll get into a little bit tonight. But Malachi made his last prophecy around 425 B.C. And so possibly the 400 years of silence is the 430 years of this prophecy being a future punishment. But I don't think that's what the context is showing us. Now, ironically and interestingly, if you add 390 and 40 together, you get 430 does anybody know another time in Scripture that 430 years is significant? I see a head nodding. The Egyptian captivity. Go back with me to Ezekiel. Sorry, it's not Ezekiel. Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. Look at verses 41 and following. I'm oh, sorry, 40 and 41. Exodus chapter 12, verses 40 and 41. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. 
At the end of the 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Isn't that interesting? Don't get too excited. You won't, you won't, it won't help you much. It won't help you much. But there is an interesting attempt out there. And it's interestingly enough for me to share it with you. But even this one has issues. But of all the things that I dug into and all the different possibilities as to what the future judgment. He's to lay on his side for 390 days representing 390 years, I think, of future punishment. And 40 days on his other side representing 40 years of future punishment. In all my research, I found something that's very, very, very interesting. And it's interesting enough that I'm actually going to share it with you and do the math with you somewhat. We're not going to go into the full math because I'll lose some of you. But as I do this, please listen closely. I'm not saying this is it. I'm not sure it is because I have issues with this as well. But it's just interesting enough that I have to share it with you. There's a clue someone thinks they found back in the passage we ended with last week in Leviticus 26. Go back to Leviticus chapter 26. You remember last week we looked at the fact that way back before God took them into the promised land, through Moses he had prophesied that if they walk in disobedience and worship these idols, here's what's going to happen to them. And we saw how Ezekiel is going to be prophesying word for word how every of those things are going to happen. Go with me to Leviticus 26, and I'm going to show you in four places. God says something here four times in a short period of time in verses 18 through 28. Look at Leviticus 26, 18. He says, and if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. Look at verse 21. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. Look at verses 23 and 24. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. Look at verses 27 and 28. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. Four times in this same passage that we've looked at that's tied to Ezekiel's prophecy, God said, I'm going to be sending famine, pestilence, wild beasts. I'm going to be doing all this stuff to get your attention and have you come back to me because of your sinfulness. And four times in this, he said, if you don't respond appropriately and they don't turn back to me, I'm going to multiply this seven times. Now, let me ask you a question. We know that the nation of Israel was finally, the northern kingdom and southern kingdom, finally removed from the land by 586 B.C. and taken into Babylon. It was around 536 B.C. that Cyrus now is king and the Medes and the Persians are in power. And they released the Jews to free to go back into the land. Does anybody know what percentage of Jews actually went back to the land? Close, but no. It was like 5%. 5% of the nation actually went back into the land. The rest of them all said, nah, we kind of like it here in Babylon. We're going to stay. 
Oh, and by the way, if you know anything about the history of Israel, did they turn back to the Lord, even though he let them back into the land and rebuild the temple? No, they really didn't. I mean, think about all that they went through and still under Roman occupation and dealing with the Greeks and Alexander the Great and all the things that went through in the 400 years of silence. Even at the time that Jesus himself walks on the earth, the Jews aren't really worshiping God. They're going through the motions at best. So there's a chance that this 390 years and 40 years of future judgment we might be doing the math wrong if we've been only trying to add 390 and 40. Because God said, if you don't respond to this, I'll multiply your judgment times seven. There are people that have done the math. And they take the 430 years of captivity, or sorry, not captivity, 400 year, 430 years of future judgment. All right. Well, let me back up and just say it to the way I put it in my notes so you just stick with me here. The math is just complicated enough to lose some of you. So I wasn't going to take the time to go through it all. But it's not too complicated for those who would enjoy studying this further. But here's the short version. The short version takes the 70-year Babylonian captivity and subtracts it. From the 390 and the 430 years, all right? Sorry, the 430 years, take away the Babylonian captivity of 70 years, you're left with how much? 360 years. Multiply that times seven, because he said, after all this, if you don't, you multiply that times seven, you're gonna get around 2,500 and something, all right? Now, you gotta keep in mind, in biblical study, prophetic years, in the Jewish mindset are 360 days long. We know that from our study of Daniel and Revelation. That's why, you know, three and a half years is 1,260 days. A biblical year is 360 days long. Our years are 365.2, you know what I'm saying? So you've got to do a little bit of math now. You've done 360 times seven to be 2,500 and something, but that's prophetic years, and when you do the math, to match it back up with how many days are in a year for us. And then you take out the fact that there is no such thing as year zero. Remember, there's 1 BC and then 1 AD. There is no zero year. When you do all that, anybody want to take a guess on what year it comes to? 1948. It comes to 1948 when the nation of Israel became a nation again in the land. Interesting, isn't it? Don't get too excited. Don't get too excited. Because let me ask you a question. When he brought them back into the land, have they turned to him? No. So that doesn't prove anything. It's interesting enough for me to share it with you that maybe that 430 minus the 70 years of Babylonian captivity times 7 it comes out to 1948 when you do the work. Maybe that's tied to it somehow. I don't know. But at the same time, we still know that there's a time of purification for the nation of Israel that's still coming, isn't it? That seven years still left, that time of Jacob's trouble. It, it's, it's not over for them yet. 
But it's interesting enough for me to throw that out and just say, maybe there's part of the reason, I'll get right to you, John, maybe part of the reason why we don't understand how to interpret the 390 years and the 40 years is we don't realize that maybe there's more days or years involved than just the 390 and the 40. Maybe that's seven. He says it four times very clearly. I'll multiply your judgment seven times. And it's ironic that it ends up on 1948. Your question. Oh, well, since Jesus wasn't born B.C. 1940, probably 40 B.C. It might not be math a little bit, because if you go to 34, it'd be like 30. Oh, no, no. Like I say, it's, it's very clear that it comes out to 1948. That's, that's not a problem. Don't know. Again, that's the 40. What about the 390? You know what I'm saying? Trust me, I've spent 15 hours trying every single way that I could figure out how to make the math work. You can't. And people that I respect who know the word better than me, I've been in contact with them. I've spent hours talking to some. I have been doing research. I have been going to websites. I've, folks, if it was knowable, I think somebody out there would know it. And ultimately, even John MacArthur says, we don't know the beginning nor the ending date of this prophecy. And you have to be okay with that. Because even though we're in a time in which things are being unsealed, that doesn't mean we understand everything now, do we? There's still prophecies that we don't fully understand how they're going to play out. The prophecies in Isaiah 17 and Psalm 83 about the judgment of the nations that are right around Israel which aren't mentioned in the Gog and Magog battle in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And it's ironic that the nations that are right now on the borders of Israel, who are enemies of Israel, aren't mentioned in the group of nations coming against Israel in the Gog and Magog battle. There's people that have speculations as to why, and I have speculations as to why, but there's still prophecies we don't fully understand how they're going to play out. And you have to be okay with that because God opens our eyes when it's time for his reasons. And even Daniel, who was given the visions, said, when is this going to happen? How's it going to be? And God said, it's not for you to know. It's not for you to know. And so I say to you, I did all this work to just say, if you want to, please keep your faith by the end of the study. But let me just save you a lot of headache I don't think we can know what the 390 and the 40 truly are representing. But one day we will. One day we will. But I have good news. There are some things in here in chapter 4 that I can explain to you. All that was to, to tell you what I can't explain. Ezekiel is told to bear his arm as he prophesies against the city of Jerusalem. That's very interesting and very important, too, because as he prophesies the judgment coming against the city of Jerusalem, he's told to bear his arm when he does it. And I'm going to show you a passage in Scripture that kind of talks about this. But the bearing of their arm was a way in which they signified they were going to fight. Because soldiers, when they would go into battle, would bear their arms. You ever picture guys getting into a fist fight? They always roll up their sleeves. That's the picture of it. Go with me to Isaiah 52. You know what I'm talking about, right, Mike? So Isaiah 52, here's a picture of when Jesus comes back. In Isaiah 52, look at verses 8 through 10. Here's a picture of when Jesus comes back, and look how it's described. It says, the voice of your, Isaiah 52, verse 8, The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye do they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing. 
You waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm again before the eyes of all the nations. And all, excuse me, the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. By the way, when Jesus comes back and he's bearing his arm, we know from the prophecies, what's he doing when he comes back? Defeating all of his enemies. And in this situation, Ezekiel's told, you face Jerusalem and bear your arm as you prophesy toward it. In other words, they're going to be attacked. They're going to be fought against. He was also told that he was, God was going to make it so that he couldn't turn from one side to the other until he had completed the total time of his siege, just as Jerusalem couldn't escape what was coming to them. In other words, it's hard enough to lay on one side for that long, but God was going to make it so that he couldn't move during the time that he was to do this. In other words, showing Jerusalem won't be able to escape it either. What's coming you can't get out of. And then, as we have been waiting probably for me to get to, at least the guys in the room, Ezekiel was told to bake his bread out of very unpalatable things and then cook his bread on dung. Now, any idea what this is a picture of? Actually, it's not as hard as you think. Remember, the, the siege of Jerusalem that he's prophesying about, this is around 592 B.C. right now when he's prophesying the final siege, the third time that Jerusalem is sieged. But this time they're going to build siege works and they're going to totally destroy the city. It began in 588 B.C. and was culminated, it began in January of 588 B.C. and culminated in 586. So that means the city was under attack for two years. Guess what? What's going to run out inside that city while they're under attack for all that time? Wood, water, food. Well, how did they bake their bread? They would take wood and make a fire, and then they would get the fire going with coals, and they put the rock on it, and that would heat the rock, and they'd bake their bread. We see it in, in the, remember when Elijah is fed by God in the wilderness, and he's told to wake up, sleep, and eat, you know, and there's bread baking on the hot rocks. The problem is, is there's not going to be any wood to burn. And the only thing they can use for fuel will be their own poop. And God says, I want you to cook your bread on a rock with your own poop. And Ezekiel said, um, God, I know your law. Remember, the Jews were told when they had to go to the bathroom, they were to go outside the camp and do it. They weren't even allowed to do it inside the camp. They were to do it outside the camp because they would have made the camp unclean if they had done it inside the camp. I remember when I was in seminary, we had a guy in the singles dorm who had a problem where he wouldn't flush the toilet when he was done. And I knew I was in a seminary because on the door, someone had hung that scripture from Leviticus where you're to do it outside the camp. And he was, they wrote underneath that, at least flush if you're going to do it inside the camp, you know. But... Ezekiel says, God, your law said that that's to be done outside the camp. And if I do that in here, I'm going to be unclean. I've never eaten anything unclean. All the laws that you said about what things make me unclean, I've never done it. God says, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to let you use cow dung then. But look at the ingredients that he's to make his bread with. Barley, wheat, beans, lentils, millet, and emmer. He's to put them in a single vessel and grind them up and make his bread from that. Now, you can tell by looking at me, I've never been in a food, uh, uh, like a, a health food store in my life. But I've done some research. 
So those of you that go to health food stores like the GNCs and stuff like that, have any of you ever heard of Ezekiel bread? There is such a thing as Ezekiel bread. Guess what? This is the ingredients of Ezekiel bread. Has anybody eaten Ezekiel bread? Tastes really good, doesn't it? No, it tastes horrible. It's absolutely unpalatable. But you know what's interesting? And this is how awesome God is because he created us and he knows how to sustain us. Even though it doesn't taste good, those things all together create a protein. And it sustains life. There's nothing by accident. God knows what he's doing. But he's told to make his bread out of this stuff, cook it on a rock that is being fueled by what? Cow dung. You know the smoke's got to be coming up from it. That can't be good. But God told him to do this as a picture of what's going to be happening when Israel is judged. I'm going to, in the time we have left tonight, ask you a couple of questions. Why? He also was told to measure his intake of water as well to prophesy about the fact there'll be no bread and no water. Um, Why would God have the prophet Ezekiel do this strange thing? Why would Ezekiel be told to lay on his side for 390 days and eat bread and drink very little water cooked on cow manure in front of the people that come to his house? Why does God have Ezekiel do this strange thing? Oh, before you answer, in my study, I found that this isn't the only time that God has not only Ezekiel do something strange, Later on in our study, you're going to find that Ezekiel's told um, your wife is going to die and you can't mourn. You can't cry. You can't act like you're sad about it. You're to just go on like nothing happened. Did you know that God had Isaiah walk naked for three years? Some of you say, what? You spend 15 hours looking at something, you're going to find all sorts of stuff. Go to Isaiah Look at verse, uh, chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. At this time that Isaiah was prophesying, the northern kingdom was still existed, and they were hoping that um, the uh, Egyptians were going to help them against the Assyrians. In Isaiah chapter 20, it says, In the year that the commander-in-chief who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it, at that time the Lord spoke by Isaiah the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and important against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of of Cush their hope and of Egypt their boast. And the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? In other words, because the, the Israelites were looking to have the Egyptians and the Cushites to protect them against the Assyrians, instead of turning to God, God said to Isaiah, I want you to strip yourself naked and go barefoot for three years as a prophecy about the fact that I'm going to take the Assyrians and I'm going to send them down to take the Cushites and the Egyptians captive and they're going to lead them out bare, naked, buttocks exposed. 
Why does God make his prophet go naked? Why does God have his prophet lay on his side for 390 days cooking his bad bread on poop? Why? You can do better than mumbling. Definitely, it's, okay, it definitely is fact. A visual. Why a visual? Why do we need the visual? Okay, signs and wonders, close. It's actually an easier answer than you think. It's to get their attention. You parents, when your kids would walk in disobedience, you wanted them to listen to your word, right? When Becky and I were blessed to be in ministry for a few years before we even had our first child. So by the time our kids came around, we had already been in ministry helping parents with their kids. And we had learned that one mistake a lot of parents made was, you know how parents will count? They'll say, come here. One, two, three. We decided we don't want our kids to think we mean it when we get to three. We meant it when we said one. Actually, we meant it when we said it before we even said one. And plus, if our kids run against, across the street and a truck's coming, we don't have time to get to three for they realize we're serious. So we taught our kids early, if we say one after we told you, that's one spanking. If we say two, that's two spankings. If we say three, just keep running. It'll be better for you if you don't come back. Because we wanted our kids to listen and understand that when we said it the first time, we meant it then, not when we got to one. But if your child walked in disobedience, you would speak to them, and then you might speak to them again a little louder. Eventually, you might slap a hand or spank a bottom. You kept upping the ante to get their attention. Sometimes you had to take the car keys away. Sometimes you had to ground them. Whatever it took, you wanted to get their attention. And God has been all along speaking and speaking and speaking. And we saw in Leviticus 26, I'm going to use pestilence. I'm going to use wild beasts. I'm going to use sword. I'm going to use famine. I'm going to use drought to get your attention. And if you don't listen to that, I'm going to multiply it times seven. And he's doing, having his prophets do crazy stuff just to get, I'm going to just say it, folks. Do you not realize that 9-11 was to get our attention? I mean, if any of you have ever read any of Joel Rosenberg's books, and he wrote his Fiction novels, the reason Joel Rosenberg's books became so famous and so popular is because when the planes flew into the buildings on 9-11, his first manuscript of his first book, which had terrorists flying planes into buildings in New York City, was sitting on the editor's desk at the time. And when the editor, after seeing 9-11, opened that manuscript that was sitting on his desk, he quickly called Joel and said, how did you know? And Joel only could say, it's just a picture God gave me. And he told me to start taking scripture and making stories that line up with the word of what is coming. Oh, did we as a nation respond? Only in pretense, like Judah said. Oh, there was a period where our churches were full, but not for long. Folks, I wish I could tell you that the judgment on the United States isn't going to happen. It's going to happen. It's already begun. 
But here's what I want to talk to you about. Please pray between now and then for the mercy of God. It won't be stopped. There's too many people out there saying, if my people will call by my name, we'll pray. Listen, that was written to the nation of Israel when the whole nation was his people. Not just the believers in the nation. You'll find that believers in the nation, even in the nation of Israel, were praying for the nation. And you're going to see later on in our study, Jeremiah is told, don't pray for him anymore. The judgment's already coming. But I haven't heard God say, don't pray for the United States anymore. What is our role, the church, before we're taken to be with him? We're to be the salt that slows the decay. Folks, please get involved in the political process of voting at least. And, but again, you say, Jim, who do we vote for? You grit your teeth, you plug your nose, and you vote for the Supreme Court. Because honestly, let's be honest, both candidates, I, got, I have no confidence in either one. But I'm praying and seeking God as to one of these is going to be actively involved in deciding who's going to be in the Supreme Court. And that's going to have an effect on our nation for years to come. So, folks, I'm just telling you, in the days that we have left, as God has been trying to get our attention, we need to, as the church, be seeking God's mercy. God, it won't stop. We know your word. We know that there's no United States. We know that at some point soon, all the nations will be against Israel. As Michael was telling me tonight, the United Nations have just made a resolution that Jerusalem had the Jews have had nothing to do with the city of Jerusalem in all their history. Isn't that crazy? The United States is going to be involved if we even exist, as the Bible says. It's not going to be stopped. But he's been trying to get our attention, and we need to listen. We need to listen and pray and seek his mercy. I'm going to take you in the time we have left to two passages of Scripture to show you how God will get our attention sometimes. Go to Job chapter 33. Now, as I read to you these two passages, Job 33, and then we're going to go to Psalm 32. Please listen closely. As I share with you that sometimes God brings physical suffering because we've not been listening to him as he speaks to us, please do not automatically assume that if you are physically suffering or if someone you know is physically suffering, that means they're in sin. Because as we know also from Scripture, Paul prayed three times that the thorn in his flesh would be removed, and God said, no, I'm going to leave it there so that my power will be made known through your weakness. Sometimes God leaves us in suffering so that he can be glorified through it. But I'm going to tell you, it never hurts when we're dealing with physical suffering, to first say, Lord, is there sin reason for this? Now, let me also say this. I also believe, according to the scriptures, that when God does use physical suffering to deal with our sin, we don't have to really ask, Lord, is there a sin reason for this? You understand what I'm saying? We know. Because God would not just give you suffering and not have you know why. He's spoken, he's spoken, he's spoken. And because you haven't listened, then he uses physical suffering. Look at what it says here in Job 33. Elihu is speaking. Job has said, well, I can't have a face-to-face -face with God because who can talk to God? It's not fair. God doesn't even talk back anyway. And Elihu, who speaks for God in verse 14 of chapter 33, says, God does speak in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, while they slumber on their beds, 
Then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen and his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of a thousand, to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him and says, Deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God, and he accepts him, and he sees his face with a shout of joy, and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right, and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring his, back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. Here we see that God does speak. And sometimes when we don't listen to when he speaks, he'll send physical suffering to get our attention. Go to Psalm 32. Look what David says here in Psalm 32. Verses 1 through 11. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For a day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin." Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. In other words, David says... When I was in sin and not listening to you, I was suffering. I was in angry, anguish and, and misery. And then I made it right. And I was restored. And he says, don't be. God says, I'm going to speak to you. I'm going to counsel you. I'm going to lead you in the way you should go. Don't be like the horse or the mule that you've got to put a bit in their mouth to get them to go where you want them to go. And I say that to us individually. We're already secure in faith in Jesus Christ, and we're already going to heaven. Yes, but at the same time, these same truths that applied to the nation of Israel apply to us. The Bible teaches that for believers, there is a sin unto death. There is physical consequences for walking in disobedience to the Lord. You don't lose your salvation, but the Bible says there's going to be those who go to heaven and don't have much reward because they tuned a deaf ear to God speaking to them. And so I say to you as we close tonight, unfortunately our nation as a whole has already turned their deaf ear to God. It's obvious. We've been given over. It's done. That doesn't mean we still don't seek his mercy and be the salt and slow the decay a little longer while we're here still. Because if the salt has lost its saltiness, what good is it? If the church stops being the church, what good is it? But they're not going to listen. That's okay. Still pray, speak truth. Oh, and in your individual lives, 
Keep short accounts with God. Don't make him have to put a bit in your mouth or amp it up to get your attention. Because we've already seen he's pretty creative. Thanks for coming. We'll see you in two weeks.